Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for a time of we thank you for a time of fellowship. We thank you, Lord, to get, Father, that even as we share the word today, that the word will come forth and it, the seed will be planted in our hearts and bring forth fruit in the name of Jesus. We cover tonight's session with the blood of Jesus, that even after we've heard the word, the word will not be stolen from our hearts in the mighty name of Jesus. Thank you, Heavenly Father, because we know that you are here where two or three are gathered you are here today. Thank you for the change. Thank you for the transformation. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us. In Jesus' mighty name, I have prayed. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, uh, Randy. And it's good to um, see everyone again. Uh, thanks, uh, Simone, for turning on your camera. Thanks, Vinny, as well, um, for turning your camera. Thank you, Joe. I'm not going to try to run an auction like I did last week, getting everyone to gradually turn on their cameras. But uh, it's always good when people turn on their cameras. It just means that I'm not just speaking to letters and I could see another camera coming on. Thank you, Brandy. Um, yeah, no, thank you, Burr. There we go. It's, 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 uh, we're getting the numbers high. The numbers high. Uh, do we want to go a bit higher uh, than this? Oh, thank you, Edith, as well. Um, I oh. like the auction. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Should we be ambitious? All right, there we go. So I think there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight videos on. Um, just to give us heads up as well, and uh, that we'll be having a photo shoot for our Instagram ad uh, at the end of tonight's meeting. Now, I'm just going to get us to do a quick recap of last week's session. Um, so if anyone is uh, brave enough to tell us what they remember from last week, it doesn't have to be anything about the key topic that we were meant to look into it could be literally anything that you remember from our session last week just for the benefits of uh, those that couldn't join us last week so the floor is open for contributions on whatever you remember from last session hello guys can you hear me we can yes Okay, so last week, Susan threw a spanner in the woods. And so um, she asked a question about generational costs. The, um, so she, was, she just wanted to know that, I think she was, I wouldn't say she was confused, but she was just saying that what if, if we are praying and praying and praying and nothing seems to be happening, when we want, maybe we've seen some things in the family and wanted it to like break, how come, you know, nothing is happening? And there was something that Fala pointed out. So Fala said to each and every one of us, and also I think the conclusion that we came up with was, there's, okay, so there's no such, okay, so generational cost is there, but what happens is when we get closer with our relationship with God, so God, because of we're now walking hand in hand with him, so God now reviews what is going on in our families to us. So now that he's reviewed that to us, so it's for us to pray about it. It's for us to like um, not accept what is going on, you know, to cancel, you know, whatever the enemy is trying to do in our family. So I think what we, I think for me, what I learned from like last week was, you know, I can see like what is going on in my family, the pattern and everything, but I don't have to follow it. Instead, now that God is revealing to me, what I have to do is I have to break the pattern and I have to like cast it out and I have to like, you know, change the dynamic of what I've seen in the family. 
I can do it through the help of God. So, I'd, yeah, I'll stop there. Please, guys, continue if anyone has anything. Yeah, so just to give uh, context to the question as well. So I think the reason why we went down that route was one of the scriptures that we looked at last week was 1 Corinthians 8, 4. That says uh, there's only one God. There's no other God. Um, and the context of that scripture was looking at how sometimes as God's people, we might become fearful of eating food that has been offered to idols. And I was placing an argument, which is what Paul was saying, that if there is no other God, then every food is sanctified. And so that was the context in which that conversation came up around uh, generational curses. Um, so, yeah. Anyone else that wants to volunteer? Um Anything to remember from last week? Welcome, Mary. We're just doing a quick recap of last week's session. So anyone else that remembers anything else that from the session from last week? Yeah, good evening, Fola. Okay. Sorry, I, I came in late. I was still on the road then. Um, good evening, everyone. You are looking good, by the way. This is Ghana look, Fola. It's not UK look. So Thank you, I remember that we spoke about the text we read about uh, what Paul was addressing about eating. And he's saying that we're able to establish that um, if we don't know the source or we are ignorant of that, so we don't have to call it, um, uh, it's not an abomination for us to eat. But once you know this is what these have been tagged to and you believe it for that, and if you are eating it, you're participating in idolatry sort of just want to check that in sorry paul i just needed to clarify what the point you've made so in the text paul is not saying that you couldn't eat it he's just saying that we should flee from idolatry um so christians are free to eat food that has been offered to idols however we should just be mindful that when we're eating it we're also not participating um but if we need further clarification on that, we can always do that in the after party, um, just so that we're clear. One final um, note from last week from anyone that was present. Susan, where are you? Me? She's nominated you, so I think you can only- Okay. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I think um I think you know everyone who has spoken has has sort of summarized what we what we talked about last week. You know, I yeah, I didn't mean to change the direction of the study, but I think just to clarify from my standpoint, it was coming from a place of um you know as you said Paul writes about if we eat foods that have been sacrificed to idols like basically we should eat and not feel worried. You know, we should eat whatever. Um, and um, and then my question, my mind sort of went to, sorry, I think Paul, I can't remember the exact words of the scripture, but what I understood from it was that if we, even if we eat foods that have been sacrificed to idols and we are not aware, we will not be punished by God. And so my mind went to generational curses, yeah, where our past um you know the ancestors of our bloodlines mother's house father's house have delved and dabbled in idolatry so why is it that someone can be born and reap the sort of consequences of the curses so that's where what i was curious about but it was it was cleared up 
for me last week and we had a really insightful conversation and I think you use scripture to even back it up in terms of you know how um that that sort of is, is cancelled when you're in Christ Jesus so yeah thank you is that all right it Edith <laughs> I'm just joking thank you and uh, I'll invite us also to listen to the podcast recordings it's it, our sessions are usually uploaded on the same evening uh it's on um, spotify on apple podcast if you just search transforming community thursday bible study now one thing i was hoping that everybody would mention it was the fact that we established that god was one um and we talked about the shema uh, which is where everything more or less started from um and so again just remind us the topic that we're going through is the trinity and uh, so one of the things that we established very firmly that there is only one god only one god um, and we looked at the Hebrew prayer called the Shema that, you know, they would normally recite in the morning and in the evening called, yeah, called the Shema, which is based on Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. Now, in claiming that God is one, um, one may ask then, why does the Bible um or how did people come up with this concept that God <laughs> is uh, three? Um, how did people come up with the concept that God is three? And that's where, you know, uh, the topic of the Trinity is about. Now, what you find is the word Trinity is actually never mentioned in Scripture. Um, so if you literally go search Trinity in Scripture, you would never find that word um same with the word rapture uh, rapture is not found in scripture however we see the meaning of it in scripture so using rapture as an example the bible talks about how believers will be caught up so even though the word rapture is not mentioned the meaning of it is used and in the same way when it comes to the word trinity and trinity just means uh three in one that's literally the literal meaning of uh, of trinity uh, three in one even though it's not that word itself is not mentioned we see the impact of it throughout uh, scripture and i want us to start from the very very beginning uh, from genesis and so if you have your bibles um let's turn to genesis chapter one verse one genesis chapter one verse one um it's also worth mentioning uh for you khadija that sometimes when um, I ask the question, there's always an open floor, um, so feel free to contribute if you have anything to contribute, and also don't feel threatened by the silence as well, all of us are used to each other now, uh, that if people don't have anything to contribute, you would hear silence for maybe about 20 seconds. Dumi, um, um, I'm not sure if you're speaking or... Um, because you came off mic, off mute just a moment ago, um, or whether that was a mistake, uh, just to let you know. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Can anyone please volunteer to read? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Thank you. Um, does anybody have another translation?
Okay. There's no that's sorry, follow. What did <laughs> I another translate? First one. Um let's go with the I think it's the same. The New Living Translation says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Is that what Simone? Yeah, because I use the NIV and it's it's seen exactly the same thing. Now, the reason I got us to read that scripture is it's to, by the way, in terms of different translations, doesn't the really good matter. news the good news translation says in the beginning when God created the universe. Okay, in the beginning when God created the universe. Now, the the point I'm trying to make with this scripture is is not really observable in the actual text itself. So when you read it, you don't really see what I'm trying to say. But um, if you remember, when we looked at the names of God, um, we talked about God being called El, El, El Elion or Elohim. Um, and does anybody remember what we said about that particular name, El Elion or Elohim? It's been a while now, but um, yeah. God, power, and might. Is that Elohim? That that's part of it. But I think what I was I'm trying to get towards is about the the fact that the word L is a plural form uh, for God. Um, plural. So in English language, when we talk about plural, we just mean there's more than one. Um, so it's more than an item. So singular is one thing. Plural just mm -hmm. means it's it's more than one. And whenever the word L is used in front of God's name, it's always plural. Um, and what you find is in Genesis 1, verse 26, Genesis 1, um, verse 26, um, and I'm going to read, the Bible says here, and God said, let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness. Now, it's interesting here that we see the plurality a bit more now in the, in the use of the word us. So whilst, yes, God, the word God is in the plural form, Elohim, um, we see again that the Bible talks about let us let us make man. Now, some people have argued that when the Bible uses the word us, you know, it's the same way sometimes when we talk, talk about the monarchy, they use the word us to describe themselves. So rather than saying, you know, um, the king said, we talk about how, you know, the United, the United Kingdom, for example, is defined as a plural, us as a nation. Uh, of course, we're talking about one nation, but we're talking about us as a nation. So that's the way in which people have talked about, you know, this being used um, in that sense. Another way in which people have also talked about this is also could eat the scripture be talking about angels, you know. So in other words, God not just talking about himself, but in being surrounded by angels saying, OK, you know what, let us, God and the angels around him, make man in our own image. But one thing we find is, there isn't any other scripture that talks about how man or human beings are made in the likeness of angels. The only conclusion that we can come up with this particular verse, which is not fully pronounced in what we're talking about today, is the fact that there's a plurality with God, which means as opposed to, you know, the singular being used, there's that sense in which there is more than one entity in who God is, all right? Now, again, this scripture doesn't quite tell us directly whether God is three in one. It just tells us that there's an element of plurality in God. I'm going to leave the floor open. Perhaps anybody has any thoughts or any reflections that they want to share before we look at another scripture.
Yes. Thank you. I was just thinking about it while you were teaching that at what point did um did we start the doctrine of or the teaching anyone of Trinity? Yes. From if we are if we are going through this um what we are saying now from that old testament, I don't think people see God as being plural. So I, I'm just inquisitive to know at what point does it become a doctrine? Now we've seen um we've seen churches that will tell you we believe in Trinity, some will say they don't believe in it, something like that. So at what point does it become something that um a doctrine, so to say? Now that's a good question, and it's something I didn't quite prepare for this today's session, but I'll take a quick stab at it. So it started as far as the fifth, between the third and the fifth century. That's when they started. Um, so we had early church fathers like uh, Irenaeus, Vitalian, uh, Athanasius. They were the ones that helped uh, us in our understanding of uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. So in direct answer to your question, it's as early as the third to the fifth century that's when they started does that answer your question um yes it does thank you now maybe for next week's session i'll do a bit more digging as to the context around what was going on at the time that led them to uh formulate the doctrine for us um but there's always a context with church doctrine sometimes especially with propositional statements of doctrine there's always things that is going on around uh, in the early church that they, it meant that they had to come up with a formula, so to speak, um, to define this, all right? So yeah, so based on Genesis 1, uh, verse 1, as well as Genesis 1, 26, we see here that there's the concept of plurality um, being introduced, even though we don't quite know uh, what he alludes to. Um, the second scripture that I want us to look at, and I'm going to put a question out again, is can anyone tell us, and I'm going to give a quiz, uh, a prize for this, by the way, can anyone tell us what is the scripture that is most used in the Old Testament, in the New Testament? So what scriptural verse is used the most in the New Testament that you can take from the Old Testament? Please no using of Google. And the prize is 15 pounds Amazon voucher in the UK in Stalin, all right? Um, I'm just gonna take a guess, is that okay? Yeah, please, guesses are welcome. The the most used scripture, is that what you're saying, right? No, so the most used Old Testament scripture that is referenced in the New Testament. Oh, yeah, no, okay, never mind. <laughs> what were you thinking, Vinny? I was thinking, um, yea, th though I walk through the valley of the... Yeah, that one. <laughs> that's and, the one. Because it's Ooh, said at most, most funerals. Oh, huh? I see. Okay. Because it's said at most funerals here in the States anyway. So. Okay. It's good I clear that up. So, yes, by the way, this is not in the US, in the UK, on Google. This is in the Bible. Um, I could see Obara's face trying to figure this out because I know she's always the queen of uh, quizzes in, in different contexts. But anyway, um, anyone wants to give a stab? the most used Old Testament verse in the New Testament. I guess I'm going to keep my 15 pounds um, Amazon voucher to myself then. Um, all right, so let's look at Psalm 110. Psalm 110. 
Um, and for those that want to cross-reference, it's also cross-reference against Matthew 22, verse 41 to 46. In fact, let's read Matthew 22 first uh, from verse 41 to 46. Matthew 22. So whoever gets it first should please read. And this was a discourse that Jesus was having with the Pharisees. Um, what are the verses again for that, please? Sorry. 41 Matthew. to 46. Matthew 22. Correct, yes. 426, yeah? No, 41 to 46. Oh, 41 to 46. Okay. I read. Thank you. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is here? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, called him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit up, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, and to put your enemies under my feet, under your feet. If then David call him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any questions. Thank you. Um, Joe, I have to say, you sounded like a Methodist reading the scripture whilst you were reading it. Um, yeah, but thank you so much for that. Um, but verse 44 is where I want to place the emphasis here. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And by the way, that's the scripture. So this scripture is taken from Psalm 110, verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, can you imagine, it says, my Lord, or the Lord, said to my Lord. So effectively, there are two references to Lords here. Um, now, we don't know which is which, but we can only assume, based on this context, that God the Father was speaking to the Son in one breath. And so this is another Old Testament scripture that alludes to the plurality of who God is. Again, mm -hmm. we know this because usually even when Jesus had uh, resurrected, you know, Bible talks about how he seated at the right hand of the Father. And the Lord, the first Lord being mentioned is indeed the Father. And my Lord is Jesus himself referring to himself as the Lord as well. All right. Now, we have the benefit of our insight here because Jesus is looking back. But this text was written by King David. And by the Spirit of God, David was able to, you know, understand what was going on in the heavenlies. And so he was able to listen to the conversation that was happening to God the Father and God the Son, which is out of uh, Psalm 110. And from there, we can easily see it here that there's a mention of two persons uh, in the Godhead. All right. So that's the second, um, I guess, evidence of the plurality of God. But again, it, we don't really have the full revelation of it. We just know that it exists um, in that particular text. Uh, are there any questions before we look at the very last uh scripture nope 
or any comments from anyone? Brandy, are you speaking to us? Um, maybe not. Okay. Um, so let's look at the very last one, which is Isaiah 63, verse 10. Isaiah 63, verse 10. Can I please get a volunteer to read this one? Isaiah 63, Isaiah 63 verse 10, 10, New Living Translation. Yeah. But they rebelled against him and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he became their enemy and fought against them. Amen. They rebelled against him and grieved his Holy Spirit. Um, so this is going to be the last text we're going to look at. And again, this is the first time, we'll maybe not the first time, but this is one of the references where the Holy Spirit is mentioned as opposed to the Spirit of God. Um, in the Old Testament, and we can see here that the Holy Spirit is given a unique place um, in the Old Testament, even though, yes, it's not connected to any of his acts, but they just kind of mentioned uh, uniquely here. Um, but again, once we move into the New Testament, we'll see a clearer uh, picture. So all right, just to summarize again, that, you know, whilst yet last week we talked about, you know, that there is one God, um, we can see throughout uh, the Old Testament that there are shadows uh, of the plurality of God. In other words, there's that sense in which God being manifest in more than one person uh, is, is being revealed uh, to us. All right, so let's jump into the New Testament, which is where everything becomes a lot clearer. And the different examples that we look at uh, are found in different New Testament passages, also found in different uh, situations in the New Testament. And all the scripture more or less brings the, the doctrine of Trinity uh, to life. So the first one we look at is when Jesus himself was being baptized, uh, we see all three persons within the Godhead uh, being mentioned there. So let's look at Matthew 3 from verse 16 to 17. Matthew 3 from verse 16 to 17. If you can have a volunteer, as always, to please read for us. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. Amen. So that's, do you mind just reading that again for us, please, uh, Obora? Sure. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. Amen to that. Um, so here we see the three persons uh, in the Trinity being present at Jesus's baptism. So we see how the spirit of God descended on Jesus like a dove. And I think it's worth mentioning as well that it doesn't necessarily mean that there was a dove 
in the hair at the time. I know a lot of our churches, we've kind of represented the spirit by a dove, but he's just talking about the gentility of the landing of God's spirit on Jesus. So we see this mention of the Holy Spirit. We also see the mention of the Son. Um, and then this is on towards the second part of verse 17, and it says, this is my beloved Son. Um, we see that mention of the son as well. And the son being mentioned here was Jesus because this was Jesus that was being baptized. And then finally, the fact that somebody says, my son or my beloved son in whom I am well pleased speaks of God the Father. All right. So this is, the, I, I guess, in the New Testament, the very, at the very onset where we see the mention of the three different persons within the Trinity um, being given um, center stage all at once. I'm going to jump uh, towards the end of Matthew, uh, the book of Matthew, uh, looking at Matthew 28. And it's a famous text that we all know called the Great Commission. Uh, it's a famous text that we all know. So Matthew 28 from verse 19 to 20. And it says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, another son and of the holy spirit again we see here the mention of the father of the son and of the holy spirit and so if somebody was to say okay then how can we summarize the doctrine of the trinity um and i've had to borrow from a book called uh, systematic theology to bring the summary to light now before i just give you the summary i think this is one of those very difficult concepts that is sometimes can be very hard to imagine because people have used different analogies to present the, uh, the Trinity. So sometimes people have used this idea of states of water. So, you know, when water is solid, it's still water, but water is solid, water is liquid and water can be vapor to try to illustrate who the Holy Spirit is or the Trinity. Uh, so it's illustrate the Trinity, but sometimes I find that that's not sufficient because it's almost as though you can't have one or the other. And if I'm to summarize the doctrine of Trinity, um, we have to think about it in three concepts or take up, uh, accept these three, these three truths. And the first one is there is one God. Okay. And that's one of the things we mentioned last week. The second one is God is three persons. Okay. Now, it's worth saying that we need to distinguish, distinguish this from saying that there are three gods. Okay, so we're saying there is one God, but this one God has made himself known to us in three persons. The persons are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then the last statement is to say that each person within the Trinity is God. All right, so I'll start again. There is one God, all right? So let's not mistake it to say that there are three gods. There is one God, and that's what we established last week, all right? So if somebody else to say there are three gods, no, there isn't three gods. There's just one God. In saying that there is just one God, we're also saying that that God has manifested himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then finally, to say that each person is fully God. All right, so I'll repeat that again. There is one God, 
This God has manifested himself in three persons, and each person is fully God. And what we'll be doing over the next three weeks is distinguishing him between who the Father is from who the Son is from who the Spirit is. Are there any questions um, or any thoughts um, for reflections? I have a question slash um, maybe thoughts slash. So, you know, like I used to try and explain to people um, who weren't Christian how when they would say, but how can, you know, there'd be three gods and you say it's one God, blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, oh, well, it's just like, you know, me, you know, I'm a spirit and I'm in the form of a physical body and what was the other one I have a soul or something you know blah blah so that's how I used to you know those three dimensions but it's still Mary you know and so um but I think you're how you you know like you were describing it and summarizing it is kind of I'm thinking it's kind of blown that out of the water because when I look at the scripture you know the Matthew 3 um 16 and then it says how you know, Jesus came up from the water, out of the water, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. And, you know, God the Father said, this is my dearly beloved son. I'm thinking, well, how can a form of the same person, the same God be descending on the other person of the, you know, the other part of themselves, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm, and I'm also thinking in myself that surely the Spirit of God was um, the Holy Spirit was in Jesus anyway. So is that more of was that more of a anointing, empowering at that point in time? Do you get what I'm saying? I do, I do. And I and that and I think Mary, this is part of the reason why I say this particular topic has been very difficult for people to explain. And and that's not a cop-out, it's just the very nature of it. Um but it's just recognizing that I mean, using that example of the at the Jesus' baptism, I think we can see that there are distinct persons being mentioned. And by the way, when we use the word persons, um, it's just a way of saying, I don't want to say personality, but entities <clears throat> that have um, a will that can be known, that, you know, um, that have a method of communication. And in that Matthew text, you can see that there's a distinction between the three of them. Um, in the sense of it was God the Father that spoke. It was God the Spirit that landed on Jesus. You know, um, and I also have to say, and this is not to confuse us a bit more, that, you know, the Spirit on Jesus was quite different from Jesus' own Spirit as a human being when he was on earth. I'm just going to pause there so that it sinks in. Um, It's just to say that we know that Jesus was fully human, but the spirit that descended on him was distinct from his own human spirit. Um, and so the spirit that descended upon him was the Holy Spirit, which is quite distinct from um, his own human spirit as human. Sorry, um, I think sometimes the way I tend to accept the script is just to take it on face value um, and, you know, just Remember those uh, three statements. Um, I'll just repeat that before we take Susie's um, contribution. Uh, there is one God. Each person within the Trinity uh, is fully God. 
and God has manifested himself in three persons. Um, yeah. Susie. So I, I do believe in the Trinity, but just hearing you, you know, what you're, this teaching is very perplexing. Um, so my question is more pertaining to before Jesus was baptized, before the spirit came upon him. So before then, was he God? Because I, I'm thinking where, where my mind is going is, is to, you know, Joseph accepting Jesus as his son, you know, all of that, you know, the, mag, the Magi, you know. So at that point, before the, the, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, was he God? Or was it the spirit of God that then manifested the spirit? I don't know how to, I really don't know how to explain it, but so, you know. Yeah, no, no, thanks, um, Susie. So let's take the first question. Uh, before Jesus was born, was he God? Does anybody want to answer that question? Uh, I know the answer, but I just thought I would open the floor um, in case, I'm, and I'm also trying to find a scripture that will tell us that he, the answer. Um, but yeah, the floor is open for anyone to contribute to that. Before Jesus was baptized in the Spirit, was he God? Can I can I contribute? Yes, please. Um, I think my answer to that is is yes, mm. because 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 um, she Mary became incarnate of the what what am I trying to say? Wasn't it the Holy Spirit that came upon Mary that then she was able to, she, she became pregnant? It wasn't actually through intercourse with Joseph. So therefore, if it was through the Spirit, then it, then it, then surely he, it must have been God. He must have been God. I don't know. That's what I wanted to contribute to that question that you just posed. Yeah. I would say I'm the same as Susan. Um, yeah, I would say I'm the same as Susan because the anyway, which we all know that Mary didn't sleep with um I'm sorry, didn't sleep with um Joseph, but the Holy Spirit descended on um on her. So I think for me, I've always like known Jesus as the body, anyway, his physical body is human, but in, inside of him is the Holy Spirit. So I'm thinking that maybe when he got baptized and the Holy Spirit um the dove descended, maybe he gave him more spirit in order for him to be prepared for what else, you know, is going to come up, um, war, um, war or adversity that he was going to, you know, face in, in the next future. Yeah. Um, thanks, um, Edith. Um, I think I heard someone's voice just now. So yeah, I just wanted to contribute and say that there's that scripture that literally says, um, for unto us a child is born and he shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So I think that just says he's God. Excellent. In fact, that wasn't the scripture I was going to use, but thank you so much for bringing that one up. So um, Susie, it's, it, that scripture in Isaiah is a very popular one that we tend to use around Christmas time. Um about the the advent, the, the first coming of Jesus. Um, and and I like the way it says, unto us a child is born. And that child was also given that title of a mighty God. Um, so that's, I guess that's number one proof that mm. at the very onset, even as a baby, 
Jesus is fully God. Now, the one I was going to actually use is very different from uh, the one Oberos used, but I like the Oberos one because I think that one just gives a very, very direct propositional statement about his deity from birth. The one I was going to use was in reference to the fact that the the wise men in Matthew 2, they were going to go and worship him. All right, so Matthew uh, chapter 2 from verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Only God can be worshipped. And in fact, the reason why Jesus had a lot of conflicts with a lot of the Pharisees was because he proclaimed himself as on to be worshipped. And there were always constant conflicts that, you know, how would a human being um, say that somebody can worship them? And it was on the, that basis that they wanted to stone him because of blaspheming. So the very mere fact that the Magi wanted to worship him in itself suggests his deity. But I think Oboro's scripture is a lot clearer in terms of as a propositional statement that declares him clearly as God. So that's the first question. Does that answer the first question that you raised? It does. And actually... I'm wondering, maybe this is an after-party discussion, but um, it makes me think, Is are these scriptures, or can we use these when we're talking to Muslims? Because one of the sort of prominent ar arguments that Muslims pose is, did Jesus ever say that I'm God? Mm. So I, I guess that's, again, my, you know my mind already. I'm like, you know, going all over the place. But no, it does clear it up. That's very very good very good scripture yeah. to prove it and i'll answer that question it's true that jesus never quote-unquote declared directly um, in propositional statement that i am god but i think him like for example referencing that psalm was an allusion to that so the fact that he posed that question of my lord said to my lord sit at my right hand you know that in itself was talking about him being God. And there are other scriptures of him being worshipped that he didn't tell them to stop worshipping him. Because, I mean, we Christians hold that the fact that Jesus was perfect, it was sinless. And so if somebody's worshipping you and you're not meant to be worshipped, the only thing you can say is stop worshipping me because then that would be blaspheming. But then he accepted worship. And so whilst he might not have said it directly, the fact his actions alluded to mm -hmm. the fact that he was God. Um, so, yeah, so that's a very good um point that you made there any other questions or comments oh yeah so to answer the second question around the spirit now the spirit of god coming upon jesus at his baptism was really to anoint him for service so prior to that he he was always god you know from his birth as a baby he was god um and he himself knew that because he talked about how he had to be about his father's business, which is very different from the way we'll talk about being about God's business. He, he knew his identity literally from, from the very early age. Um, mm -hmm. But at the age of 30 um, was when he launched his public ministry. And that, uh, just before he started his ministry, the Bible talks about the spirit of God descending upon him like a dove. Mm -hmm. And that was him being anointed for service to be able to do a lot of the things he did. Um, so yes, so whilst as 
be proud to that time, um, he was himself was God, but in the spirit coming upon him, he was empowered as human to be able to do the works um, that God wanted him to do. And we looked at this in context of Holy Spirit baptism um, last year. I'm hoping that the recording is available um, because for us as God's people, when the Spirit of God comes upon us, we get empowered for service. And that's, you know, through the evidence of speaking in another tongue is one of the, um, the signs of that baptism. Any other questions or any other thoughts um, from anyone? Okay, so um, so just to summarize those three truths again, truths again, is to say that there is one God. Um, God has made Himself known in three persons, and each person is fully God. All right, and so those are the three truths that more or less summarize what the doctrine of the Trinity is pretty much about. Now, in Expressing these three statements of the doctrine, I think it's worth bearing in mind some of the ways in which people have fallen into error in church history. So there's the this thing called subordinationism. And what that just means is that people feel that there's an hierarchy in the Trinity. In other words, God the Father is more important, or um, another way to express it is, is God a higher level of power compared to God the Son and God the Spirit? So it, in other words, there's some the two that I mentioned, like God the Son and God the Spirit, are like subordinates of God the Father. So that's one of the ways in which people have fallen into error. But this, this statement is effectively saying that all three of them are God. All three persons of the Trinity are God. All right, so there isn't any hierarchy of one being superior to the other. Now, in saying that, God the Son submits to the will of the Father. Even though he himself is of the same value. It's, it's very similar to in a household where, at least based on, and I have to clarify this very clearly, uh, based on biblical teaching, that the man is the head of the home. And the woman submits to the man. Now, both of them in God's heart, they are equal. Okay, so it's not to say that the man is more important than the woman. They're both equal. There's equal persons. All right. The value of the man is exactly the same value of the woman. But in terms of roles, one acts as the head and the other submits to the head. All right. Now, the reason I'm laughing is just because we've had this uh, discussion in the after party before. And so that's why there's a bit of a smile on my face. And I'm sure you see somebody else smiling as well because we had the conversation together. But anyway, that's the biblical revelation in terms of husband and wife. But it's not to say that one is less of a, in terms of value to the other. And it's also to say in the context of the Trinity that all three persons are fully God, even though one submits to the other. So for example, we know that Jesus submits to the will of the Father by going to the cross and we've been given the Holy Spirit to fulfill everything that Christ has done for us. 
all right? So one error to avoid is to say that one is more important than the other. The other error to avoid is, and I'll try to pronounce this correctly, tritheism. Tritheism. And that focuses very strongly on the distinctiveness to say that there are three gods. Okay? So we as Christians, we, serve, we are monotheistic in the sense of we believe there is one God. But tritheism says that there are three gods in the bid to try to give distinctiveness to the three persons within the Trinity. Okay? So that's another way in which people have fallen into error in the past. Susan, I see you shaking your head. Do you want to share your thoughts with us? I mean, you know, I can hear you, but I don't, I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> I have to be honest, everyone. I don't, I mean, this, this latter part, I'm just like, what you, I don't understand. <laughs> I'll try again. <laughs> so we, okay, what I'm saying is, in the past, people are falling into error to say that there are three different gods. Mm -hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. Christian belief is that there is one God, which means yes. monotheism. Okay. When people believe that there is more than one God or three gods, then it's called triism. C-R-I and then theism. Okay. But we believe that there is one God that has manifested himself in three persons, as opposed to saying that there are three gods. Mm -hmm. So that's another way in which people are falling into error to, to think about the Godhead as three different gods. But we're saying that there is one God. Okay, so the terms that you used, it, you're, you're explaining the definitions of what they are. yes. Okay, all right. I get it now, because I was thinking, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, what? <laughs> and, it's, and it's good that you, you, you spoke up, because I'm, I'm sure there'll be other people that are equally as confused, but decide not to say anything. Um, yeah. All right, so what um, I'll do is I'll drop the terms and I'll just use the explanation, right? Okay, so the first um, pitfall to avoid is the fact that there's hierarchy in the Godhead. All of them are equal, all right? However, one submits to the other. The other one is to say that there aren't three gods. There is one God that has manifested himself in three persons. And that's the one I've just tried to explain. And then the last one, which is to avoid, is to say that in God being one, there's only one person in the Godhead, which people call modalism. And I'm not trying to make you even more confused. But it's just to say that, uh, and by the way, this is not meant to be a theology class. Uh, it's meant to be a Bible study. Uh, but it's just to say that one God has manifested in, in self and three person is not to say that there's just one person in the Godhead, just God the Father. All right, because a lot of people discount Jesus as God and they discount the spirit as just a force. So it's just to recognize that we shouldn't fall into those pits either. Just because um, we said there is one God, it doesn't mean God the Father is the only God. We're also saying that Jesus is also God. We're also saying that the Spirit of God is also God, the Holy Spirit. All right. So I'm going to stop there um, to give time for reflection, to give time for discussions as to 
you know, people's uh, experiences of this topic. Um, yeah. Or to allow people to think out loud. You know what, for that, I don't know, I can make sense of it, but it's still, it's still, I'm still sitting there thinking, if you ask me, okay, if I get it, tell me what you get. And I think I'll be probably, I'll freeze. You probably have to have to do on call on this again. I'm so sorry, Joe. Uh, mm. My there was a power cut, and so my internet dropped off. And so let's start from where you say, you know what, Fola. Okay. So what I was, what I was saying um, is in my head, I get it now. I just, I'm trying to make sense of it, even. I've watched so much video over the last two weeks and just trying to make sense of the whole Holy Trinity. And what I also said was, you know, me, some of the thing when you're talking, I'm shaking my head, say, yeah, so I get it. But then if you turn around and say, oh, Joe, you get it? I said, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, explain. I'll just probably, <sighs> my mind is just <laughs> doing overtime at the moment. You know, and I just, I still, I get it, but I'm still not there, if it makes sense. It does, it does. Um, and it, this could be a fault of the way I've explained it. Um, so I do take No, 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 it's not the way I think. But is it just the subject? Because even though you're talking, I'm trying to figure out how to make sense of analogy and that things I can, examples I can use. In, I came to the thought that you think, oh, take take a man, for example, you know, a man, three in one, in essence that a man, God take a rib, made a woman, that's a second, and the woman brought a child, as you said, that's a third, so that's a kind of three in one. You know, when you're just trying to figure out so many things that make sense of what the truth, because at the end of the day, I think what I get is, is the same thing, but in a different, they all comes in different form. But at the end, they all come back to do, to make the same, to the same thing. Does it make sense? And that's why I get it, but just trying to, you know, yeah. Can so, I try and ask you a question? Say it again? I need to, can I try and ask, answer your question? But I need to ask one question to get clarification first. Go on. Um, Follow your second point. Your second point. Did you say there is no hierarchy or there is a hierarchy? There is no hierarchy. Okay, so okay, maybe because I've been watching um Lincoln Lincoln Lawyer recently. So is it similar to let's say a jury of let's say a jury of three, whereby there is no hierarchy, everybody each of them are the same, but then one person has to give 
um, performing. I guess the verdict. Yeah. Would that be a good, a kind of like a good analogy? Yeah, I think it's it's sufficient. Um, I'm trying to think of because I've in, in Nigeria analogy. If, Mm. I think the best way I could say is each person has their role. And in having their role, it comes across in human terms as one person is more powerful. So if you think about in a work context where your CEO might be the one giving directives. Now, in terms of worth, your CEO is exactly the same worth as you. Your CEO is not, is your mm -hmm. CEO is not, the, the life of your CEO is no more important than yours. However, they might give directives. And so I think that's, it, it, I mean, you can use the, the the analogy of the jury as a good one, um, but yeah. But what about it? All right, if we talk about that, but then three juries, each of them could have, have a different verdict in their mind, what, what the conclusion is, but the foreman would deliver what everyone agrees. Not, yeah, it's not, I wouldn't say in terms of delivery, I think in terms of, um, so there will be a head juror which will give the verdict, but there will be, I guess, collaboration with the other, the, the others before. So th there's no kind of waiting on on any on any one jury. They're all equal, but the one person gives the ver gives the verdict. Mm, uh, I'm not grasping that if I if I have to be honest, because I still come back to my point then. The foreman, as we talk, which the one that gives the verdict, who's the foreman. But the foreman, the yeah. other twos, okay, one could have voted yes, one could have voted no, but the foreman will still express the majority verdict. But then if we go back to the Trinity, the, the Holy Spirit, the Son, and the Father, they all sing from the same hymn. There's no different conclusion in terms of their verdict. Am I making sense here? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the jury that doesn't buy. I don't know. I thought. Yeah, I'll push back on that jury a bit. I think. No. Maybe um, the jury only works if if it was um, unanimous, so everyone agreed, everyone was in unison, and therefore the verdict was yeah. X, and it was because it was. Uh, you know,